Welcome to the Richie Flow Nutrition Podcast. My name is Cameron Borg. On this episode, I had the pleasure of speaking with Dr. James Muke. James Muke is an Australian ophthalmologist, 2020 Australian of the Year recipient and proponent of healthy eating. After beginning his career in Kenya, Muke returned to Australia where he became an eye surgeon and advocate for preventing blindness. He has started both Vision Myanmar and Sight for All, organisations aimed at eliminating blindness throughout the world. In 2012, James Muke was appointed a member of the Order of Australia, and in 2019, he received the University of Adelaide's Vice-Chancellor's Alumni Award. In 2020, he was named both South Australian of the Year and Australian of the Year. James's primary focus in recent years has been on increasing public awareness of the dangers of refined food, particularly sugar. Type 2 diabetes is the largest cause of blindness in Australia and abroad, leading Dr. Muke to focus on the preventability and reversibility of this condition when these refined foods are eliminated. I had a wonderful time speaking with James. He's extremely humble, knowledgeable, and motivated to help people achieve their optimal health. With all that being said, I hope you enjoy the episode. Thanks so much for coming to talk to me, James. This is a, this is a real honor. Um, I'd love to know um, where, how you became so interested in eyes and, you know, in your training, what, what drew you to ophthalmology? Wow, I have to wind the clock right back, Cameron. Uh, thanks for having me on your podcast this morning. It's great to be here. Uh, but, you know, I wanted to be a doctor for as long as I can remember. And there's nothing specifically during my childhood that drove me in that direction. It just was something that was in me from those early, early days. And, and certainly back when I was a child, I loved building things with my hands, making things, those model airplanes that uh, we used to do. We didn't have... Um, smartphones and computer games back then so so we used to use our hands a lot and so this combination of wanting to do medicine and then using my hands to create things and build things you know surgery was the thing that obviously uh, appealed to me and particularly microsurgery because I love doing fine work I really wanted to become a microsurgeon so I knew that from very early on so I worked hard through high school and unfortunately was able to get into medicine interestingly so I grew up in Canberra and I um uh, my, I was born in Adelaide, but Dad got a job with a CSIRO when I was five. So I grew up in Canberra, went to school in Canberra, was hoping to go to Sydney with all my, my mates and missed out on Sydney University by one mark uh, for medicine there. So I ended up coming to Adelaide, which, is, uh, which was great because there were a lot of family and friends here. So I, I did medical school here, but you know, worked my butt off during medical school to, uh, to um, then get into, uh, into surgical training. So surgery, I knew there was there was the thing that was appealing to me, and, and I said microsurgery. Um, so there were three main things that were particularly interesting. So neurosurgery, uh, plastic surgery, and, and eye surgery, ophthalmology. And <clears throat> in the end, you know, it could have been any one of those three, really. Uh, I, my internship, I was exposed to surgical training, and particularly neurosurgery, and I just didn't like the culture and the environment. So ophthalmology was then the thing that was, was particularly appealing to me. But interestingly, at that stage, you know, towards my, my end of my medical degree and certainly into my internship, I just needed a change because I'd just worked so hard through medical school, uh, through high school before that, uh, and then during my internship, uh, it was a real slog and, and just needed a break. And I think the other interesting thing was during during my internship, this was my first year of really being able to practice medicine, but I was mainly just encountering people in the public hospital who had uh, self-inflicted diseases, 
So there were generally chronic diseases back then uh, in the 80s. It was mainly diet, sorry, smoking related, but we were just starting to see some diet related diseases coming through. Type 2 diabetes was really starting to emerge. So becoming a little disillusioned, you know, only being able to uh, alleviate symptoms, prolong life, really not being able to, to reverse, let's say, or to cure a patient. And my personality as such probably can gather from liking uh, or the, you know, the building projects that I used to do using my hands. I really like to have an outcome. And so, you know, what I was exposed to during my internship really wasn't that appealing as a, as a career in medicine. So I was starting to think and explore other opportunities. And during medical school, I was, I was um, uh, doing some projects as well. I actually started making furniture, designing and building furniture. And I was even considering dropping out of medicine to, to go to Milan, actually, to study uh, furniture design. And, and so that was um, a big kind of sliding door moment in my life. But I also had been exposed to a period of time in Kenya, in Africa, uh, as a medical student in my elective. And I came across this hospital that really um, appealed to me that one day I should come back and have a a stint working there. So during my internship, I thought, well, okay, I'm going to take this opportunity to go to um, uh, to Africa and spend this year working as a, as a voluntary doctor in this little hospital in the mountains of, of central Kenya. And that was a, a truly life-changing experience. I absolutely loved that year. Uh, it, it um, you know, this, this was now an opportunity to treat patients who didn't have self-inflicted diseases. In fact, chronic diseases I don't think I even saw, I only took out the EEG machine, sorry, the ECG machine, the heart tracing machine, once during that entire year. So many infectious diseases, um, TB, malaria, delivering babies uh, through um, cesarean sections and a bit of trauma. So it was, it was very, very satisfying for me and it reinvigorated a love of medicine and it also installed in me a, a desire to pursue a career in public health. And so then... Combining that, that new interest of mine, the opportunity to use my hands through microsurgery and to have a, uh, a, a, um, an opportunity to cure blindness. Uh, cataract is the leading cause of blindness in the world. It's a very straightforward operation uh, to restore someone's sight. You know, that culmination of those three things really then said to me, ophthalmology is the thing for me to do. So fortunately, I'd set up some opportunities before I left to Africa and uh, whilst I was uh, in the hospital in, in, in Kenya, I received a phone call from the head of ophthalmology at the Royal Adelaide Hospital asking me to come and uh, join the training program. So, so that's what I did. I returned to Adelaide in 1990 to take up a career in ophthalmology and uh, yeah, so it's been uh, an amazing experience. So that's a very long-winded answer to your question, but it's uh, not an easy, straightforward thing that uh, I can tell you. No, it's a wonderful story, and I'm I'm glad you told you know the whole arc because it really puts it into perspective. But um, you've become known now a, a champion of awareness about the danger of um, refined sugars, um, particularly for ocular pathologies. Um, was there any point in your career where that sort of um, really showed itself to you? Like, when did you start to realize that these refined um, food products were starting to be devastating to eye health? Yeah, you know, loss of vision and blindness 
is the most feared complication of type 2 diabetes. And so I've been an eye surgeon and ophthalmologist for over 30 years. I think it's something like 31 years now. And I've been dealing with the blinding consequences of this disease for my entire career, but only really seeing myself as the guy at the end of the line, dealing with the complications, trying to stop people going blind and trying to restore vision. So uh, I never had thought about it that deeply that uh, these critical conversations uh, about diet uh, were really up to the the general practitioner, uh, the um, nutritionist, the dietitian. Um, So it wasn't something that I'd really ever thought about too deeply. I just thought that was happening. In late 2018, I was involved in creating a little documentary about the experience of, of, of blindness, what it means to be blind. And, and I chose 10 people, four of whom were born blind, four of whom were slowly going blind at the end of their life. But there were two who suddenly went blind during the middle of their life. And those two both had diabetes. And one of them particularly, uh, Neil Hans was his name. His story was so powerful, so impactful. Uh, At the age of 50, he went to bed one night with normal sight and woke up the next morning blind in both eyes. And he talks about the last thing he remembers seeing before he went to sleep that night was his his wife's beautiful face. And it just was such a heart-wrenching story. In fact, by the end of that interview, I was in tears, the sound engineer was in tears, the cameraman was in tears. You know, we were all in tears, including the patient and his wife. And uh, it was just one of those light bulb moments, I suppose, for me that, wow, okay, this is, this is, this is quite staggering. And I started looking a bit more deeply at this and I then realised that diabetes was the leading cause of blindness amongst working age adults in Australia, in this country. Why is that? Well, about 1.7 plus million with diabetes, the majority of whom have type 2 diabetes, about 90% of cases. And more than half, probably well over half of this huge number of people with diabetes are not having their regular all-important science-saving eye checks. And so that's why it's become such a blinding problem in our society, something like 98% of the loss in vision and blindness due to diabetes, sorry, due to type 2 diabetes, or due to diabetes altogether, is, is preventable or treatable. So missing your eye checks is not a good thing. So, you know, that was the next stage of, of the, uh, or the next piece of the puzzle. And then I was fortunate enough to receive a nomination for the South Australian um, chapter, I suppose, of Australian of the Year not expecting to win that, but preparing a speech. And when I did happen to win that award, uh, I got up uh, to make my speech and it was all about the fact that um, diabetes is this significantly blinding disease in our society. And I wanted to encourage people to have their eyes checked. Then leading forward to the national ceremony in January last year, this is when I really started to dig deep and, and, and read. And I read a number of books which were really beginning to open my eyes to this problem of type 2 diabetes and the, the, the huge driver of a poor diet and, and particularly sugar and ultra-processed foods. And so um, I really then, yeah, as I said, started to, to, to think about it more deeply. I even came up with a concept of why sugar in particular is such a toxic element in our society. And then that gave rise to the opportunity to deal with that toxic impact of sugar and so this concept, I'm not sure if you've heard it, uh, I, I call it the five A's of sugar toxicity. 
So just very briefly, the first A, addiction. So sugar is highly addictive, as, as addictive as nicotine. Second A, alleviation. We often use sugar to alleviate stress, sort of make us feel better when we're down. Third A is accessibility. You can't check out from most supermarket stores, even post offices, chemists, without being uh, enticed by half-price chocolates and soft drinks. Uh, fourth A, additions. I mean, like 75% of our food and drinks have added sugar. And the fifth A is is advertising so we are bombarded by ads tv commercials social media ads literally on a, on, a, on a daily basis so it was those five a's of sugar toxicity that concept that i came up with prior to the australia day ceremony uh that really gave me this deep understanding and when i received my award again i wasn't expecting to win the award i thought i didn't think that they would give the award to two adelaide doctors in a row but fortunate for me they did um and then my my speech became about the 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 you know, the critical issue of sugar in our diet, which I believe is a big, big driver of this. And so from that moment on, you know, this world opened up to me, this enormous, uh, extraordinary, multi-layered world. And, and really I've learned so much even from that time, the reading, the people who've been able to mentor and guide me uh, and just deeply thinking about what we need to do to get out of this uh, diabolical scenario we're in with our food environment and our chronic disease epidemic, which is man-made and largely related to our poor diet. Yeah, absolutely. Um, I think a lot of people would be um, maybe asking the question, how is the sugar that I'm consuming affecting my eyes? It's not a very, it doesn't seem like a very straightforward connection because you consume sugar, it goes into your gut. So what do you, how would you explain that to someone, the, the relationship between sugar intake and eye health? Yeah, and it's it's not that straightforward. Uh, uh, but there are over eight thousand studies linking sugar consumption to a range of chronic diseases, including type two diabetes. But I, I like to talk about three main dietary components: first being sugar, second being refined carbohydrates, which are essentially sugar in disguise, white rice, white flour, white potatoes, which are you know virtually pure starch. They break down to glucose when they reach our gut. So then. Basically, that's just more sugar. And then uh, the seed oils, which um, are also you know, dangerous. They're inflammogenic, high in omega-6 fatty acids. And those three components are the, the, the major components of ultra-processed foods, or what I like to call ultra-processed food-like substances. But to me, it's the sugar element, which is, is so addictive and is so enticing in all of those ultra-processed foods. So... Uh, it is a complex metabolic process. To try and keep it simple, there's, there's two major outcomes on the eye. The first is damage to the fine blood vessels at the central vision area of the retina, what we call the macula, which is um, that fine tissue in our eyes, which is responsible for detecting the, uh, the, um, the cues, the visual cues from the outside world, transmitting them back to the brain. So when you have damage to those fine blood vessels, you have leakage of fluid into the tissues of the, the macula, and that in itself can cause blurring and distortion of vision. The other thing is blockage of blood vessels in the retina, and you get a lack of oxygen flow, what we call ischemia, and that can trigger the growth of new blood vessels, neovascularization, or what we call proliferative diabetic retinopathy, and that can be devastating. That can lead to sudden bleeding inside the eye, Rarely in both at the same time, like happen in your hands, but that bleeding can take 
take away the eyesight and in an instant and sometimes permanently, as in the story of Neil Hansel. So um, those are the two main reasons for loss of vision in diabetes. And it's actually a combination of factors that give rise to this. The excessive consumption of sugar, refined carbohydrates, seed oils, ultra-processed foods, ultimately leads to a condition called insulin resistance. And they can all independently give rise to insulin resistance. But when we are insulin resistant, you then start to see a rise of, of blood glucose. Um, the, the liver converts that excessive glucose into fat and ultimately then starts to take that fat on and we develop what's called a fatty liver. And then you know, the, the process goes on and then ultimately when the, the liver cannot take any more fat on board, it then starts to export it away as triglyceride. And triglyceride is, is damaging to our body. So the insulin resistance gives rise to high insulin level in the blood. We have high glucose in the blood and we have high triglyceride in the blood. And it's the combination of those three factors which are so damaging to the blood vessels throughout the body. So the combination of the high triglyceride and high insulin uh, leads to the formation of fatty plaques, which then block those blood vessels. The high glucose level uh, independently gives rise to other changes such as the um, uh, loss of elasticity in red blood cells, damage to the, the, the cells, the fine cells that, that uh, lie in our blood vessels, a number of other things. So you can see it's a combination of factors that ultimately give rise to the complications of type 2 diabetes. Yeah, and I think uh, the coming along with that is usually uh, an abnormality in lipid composition. You know, we hear a lot about cholesterol as well. And, you know, correct me if I'm wrong, but it, it appears that there are cholesterol deposits in the eye when, when diabetes um, goes for several years or um, goes for too long. Um, what, what, why is cholesterol being deposited in the eye and, and what is it doing there? Yeah, it's not so much that cholesterol is being deposited in the eye, but the, <clears throat> so I mentioned about insulin resistance in the fatty liver and what happens when we have this excessive, uh, let's, if, let's say, let's look at just the glucose elements and the fructose elements. So if we, if we look at table sugar, which is the most common additive, that, that's uh, sucrose, 50% glucose, 50% fructose. Um, when it's, it's, it's really the, the fructose element of the sugar, of the sucrose, which is, is quite damaging because nearly all of it, it's actually not recognized as a food by the body. It doesn't trigger the release of insulin. When glucose is absorbed into the bloodstream, it does trigger the release of insulin from the pancreas. And, and you know, it's interesting that immediately it hits the bloodstream, something comes out of the system to, to hide it or to move it out of the bloodstream. So clearly, you know, in high levels in glucose is not good for us. It, it, it has, has its toxicity. So the body is trying to push that glucose into our cells and we use that glucose for energy or sometimes it's also stored as well. So fructose, however, as mentioned, not recognised as a food by the body, doesn't trigger the release of insulin um, and it actually suppresses our appetite control. But when it's absorbed, nearly all of it is metabolized by the liver and about a third of it is converted immediately to fat. 
much of which is then stored in the liver as a fatty liver. Also, the breakdown products of fructose can independently give rise to uh, insulin resistance, uh, mitochondrial dysfunction. So as I say, there's, there's trying to keep it as simple as possible, but um, it's that fructose element which is particularly toxic and uh, it's what we're consuming in bucket loads in sugary drinks and also ultra-processed foods. And what happens is that the when we do when we are insulin resistant, we do have a fatty liver. Um, the fat that is created by the liver is actually predominantly the small, dense LDL or low density lipoprotein particles. Triglyceride really is a proxy for that, but it's it's the small, dense particles which are particularly damaging to the fine blood vessels and give rise to, in the presence of high insulin level, to the, uh, the fatty plaques, which then block the blood vessels. And that, in turn, gives rise to the many life-changing and life-threatening consequences. So it's the small, dense particles of the LDL which are the problem, not the what we call the large, fluffy particles, which are a very elegant way of the body transporting cholesterol uh, throughout the body in, in the bloodstream. And, and cholesterol is incredibly important to our health and survival. It's a precursor hormone for our sex hormones. It makes up every the walls of every cell of our body, and it has a number of other really critical um, functions in our body. If, if we didn't have cholesterol, we wouldn't be able to survive. So cholesterol is not the enemy. It's the small, dense LDL particles, which are created by excessive consumption of, of sugar, seed oils, um, uh, refined carbohydrates. From your experience, is there a way to mediate or even reverse some of the damage that, that can be done uh, by these processes, by you know, eliminating um, all of these uh, refined foods? Yes, absolutely. So I, I often say that <clears throat> the type 2 diabetes is largely preventable and also potentially reversible. And... Uh, you know, the preventability and reversibility are, um, you know, two separate issues. But if we're just talking about reversibility, some people prefer to say putting type 2 diabetes into remission. I have now over 100 patients that I'm actively treating with site-threatening diabetic retinopathy, over 100. And when I started to realise uh, early last year that this is a disease that can potentially be put into remission, can potentially be reversed, uh, it wasn't until early this year, actually, that I then started to raise this with my patients and just simply asked them, did you realise that your type 2 can be potentially put into remission? And I think there was only one or two that actually were, were aware. So this message is not getting through to patients with type 2 diabetes, whether it's through their health practitioners, through their dietitians or nutritionists, uh, or through um, uh, diabetes associations. So the message is not getting through uh, to a significant majority of the patient this disease. So this is concerning in itself. So I then wrote back to the referring GP and say, can we please explore the opportunity to put this patient's type 2 diabetes into remission using a low-carb or even a ketogenic diet? And uh, interesting responses from GPs, endocrinologists, uh, other physicians that deal with the consequences of type 2 diabetes. But we're now starting to see a number of patients coming out the other end who have uh, been referred to the nutritionist who I recommended, who specializes in, in ketogenic diets. And we are now seeing patients who have put their diabetes into remission. They've initially come off their insulin. 
and they've come off their oral uh, hypoglycemic, so oral diabetes medications. Uh, they've lost a bunch of weight and they had quite literally put their type 2 diabetes to remission. One who had been who had, had type 2 diabetes for 15 years and she was actually angry. Why had no one told uh, this to me before? So it is absolutely possible. The concern is, you know, obviously it's... Um, uh, it, it, it's dependent on the degree of, of damage to the pancreas. I mentioned before a fatty liver, a fatty pancreas is also an essential part of the metabolic process. And, and if we have significant damage to the cells of the pancreas, which um, secrete the insulin, then that may not be reversible. If the, if the pancreas has become so scarred that it can no longer recover, then that is a concern. And we may see then uh, the no opportunity for reversal. So we can't, promise all of our patients that this is a possible outcome for them. But if it's just simply atrophy of the beta cells, uh, then the, they can recover uh, and they can start to produce insulin again. And we can see uh, type 2 diabetes then uh, being reversed or, or going into remission. And we can see recovery of the pancreas, which is often shriveled and atrophied. So there is definitely an opportunity there for patients. But if it's really extreme and there's been severe end-stage damage to the pancreas, well, that may not be possible. But I think it's certainly worth giving it a go in pretty much everyone. And even if someone has uh, type 1 diabetes or if they have um, severely damaged pancreas, reducing the level of carbohydrate in their system is a, is a good thing, can only be a good thing because in essence, they are carbohydrate intolerant. Definitely. That's, uh, I think more people are becoming aware that um, these diabetic uh, conditions are at least, um, you know, we're capable of, uh, you know, winding the clock back a little bit and, and really uh, potentially getting people off their insulin and, and low, lowering dosages of medication. That's right. And, you know, if we go through this pathway of, of insulin resistance to pre-diabetes to type 2 diabetes, then it's complications. It's a continuum. And at any point in time, you can stop, reverse that. Uh, it can only be a good thing. You know, what I would sort of warn, I suppose, is that, uh, you know, someone has lost vision. If we just look at, at the blinding complications, you know, there's, there's no guarantee that that can be reversed. But it's something I'm looking at at the moment to see whether actually putting a patient's type 2 into remission, whether ultimately we can see um, the uh, retina start to repair itself and start to see some regression, let's say, of the retinopathy in the eyes. That would be a fabulous thing to see. Um, and we also know that, unfortunately, 70% of patients with type 2 will develop dementia. 80% uh, will die of a thrombotic episode, such as heart attack or stroke. And they'll have renal failure and a whole bunch of other things that can happen. So, you know, I think it's fascinating to see. And we know already that, that going on to a low-carbohydrate diet Diet, um, the uh, coronary artery calcium scores can reduce. So it's never too late, I think, to at least uh, attempt to try and put type 2 diabetes into remission. Absolutely. Um, from your time in Kenya, did you notice that there's uh, quite a distinct difference between their diets as well as the um, illnesses that they were coming in with uh, do you see those two things as directly correlated from your experience over there? No. So I mentioned before that mainly what I was seeing were infectious diseases. And if we wind the clock back to our own society 100 odd years ago, what were we dying of? They were mainly infectious diseases. So one of the huge, huge public health um, 
successes, quite literally, vaccinations and antibiotics, which has really turned around the, the epidemic of many um, uh, um, infectious diseases that were, were the predominant cause of death back then. You know, seat belts and, and, and motor vehicle accidents was also a huge public health uh, uh, success. So I, I, it's so long ago now, I don't even recall, but I, I can't imagine I saw any patients with type 2 diabetes back then. And interestingly, I was involved in an adult blindness study in Myanmar in Southeast Asia in 2005. And, I, and we, we examined the eyes of over 2,000 people. And I don't believe amongst, and it was mainly a rural community, I don't believe there was any patients who had type 2 diabetes amongst that group. And we certainly didn't see any diabetic retinopathy. So when people are on a traditional diet, particularly when they are uh, not exposed to ultra-processed foods, which have become so prevalent in our society, you know, they were eating mainly whole foods, real foods, in essence, fresh and healthy foods. And so that uh, epidemic of diet-related diseases was not prevalent there. If we look at now <clears throat> what's being eaten, uh, in the United States, something like 62% of the calories come from ultra-processed foods. Children, two-thirds of their calories come from ultra-processed foods. In the United Kingdom, about 50%, and I think we're not far behind that 50% mark in, in Australia. So it's, it's a really sad situation uh, that um, we have this diabolical diet uh, driven by the processed food industry sugary drinks industry, which is so damaging to our health. And unfortunately, you know, let's say in Asia, we've seen this increasing sugar consumption. This is a, a population that has a diet that has been traditionally relatively high in refined carbohydrates in the form of white rice. But again, if we wind the clock back, the white rice that has been consumed was not highly processed, not highly refined. Um, uh, the portion sizes were probably a lot smaller, uh, but also we're seeing this huge increase in consumption of sugar, something like 5% per year in, in Asia. So, uh, and the increase of sugary drinks and ultra-processed foods, which when I'm traveling, I'm a keen photographer as well. And when I'm traveling in Asia, just everywhere you're seeing um, these ultra-processed foods and sugary drinks for sale, in addition to the, the obvious street foods that, that uh, you can buy. In the, in the, but you go to a market in a, in a real town in Asia, in Africa, and, and it's just full of uh, wonderful, fresh, healthy foods. That's what we should be eating. And I love Gary Fick. He's uh, just very simple sentence of eat mainly whole, seasonal, local foods, which are relevant to your environment and to your cultural background, but avoiding sugar and ultra-processed foods. You can't go wrong if you stick to that mantra. Yeah, I think it's a good distinction to make between sugar from whole foods, particularly things like, like fruit um, and even things like whole grains as well that may be high in carbohydrates but not accessible as, as nearly as quickly um, as refined foods. So is that a distinction that you make sure you, you uh, give to patients? And, you know, whilst it's probably not a good idea to have 10 pieces of fruit a day, um, you know, one or two or even, even three pieces of, uh, of fruit um, wouldn't be as damaging uh, as sugar coming from a refined source. Absolutely. So, uh, you know, I tend to not give dietary advice to my patients. I do leave that to the nutritionists and, and the dietitians that I'm aligned with. And um, But if we just look at, let's say, oranges, uh, I recommend people eat 
whole orange, not the peel. Someone asked me whether I meant, I meant the peel, but no, 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 not the peel, the whole orange. But what if you eat the whole orange minus the peel, um, you can only eat, I don't know, two or three in one sitting because the fibre content is satiating. It makes you feel full. So you can't overeat oranges or apples. Uh, when you squeeze the juice out, you pretty much leave the fibre behind. And so you can drink you know, plenty of fruit juice. But in essence, a glass of orange juice has nearly as much sugar as a glass of cola, for example. So it's pretty much a sugary hit. Yeah, it's got added vitamin C and other nutrients, but it also has that huge load of sugar. But the other really important thing is that the whole fruit and the fiber in the whole fruit slows down the absorption of the fructose element. So nature has packaged up the poison fructose with its antidote fiber. Uh, I like that um, analogy there that... Um, that uh, we should be eating the whole fruit rather than the sugary juice. Uh, it's much health healthier for you. And I tend to, you know, if you're if you're metabolically healthy, <clears throat> yes, then then you know, two or three pieces of whole fruit a day uh, is very pleasurable. But if you're getting into the type two diabetes range, then I'd be really looking at more low sugar fruit rather than particularly rather than the tropical fruits, which are high sugar fruits. Definitely. Um it's a, it's a very big problem that we're facing uh, as far as, you know, you mentioned the five A's. We really can't get away from these poisonous foods and they happen to be quite cheap as well. So it becomes appealing to uh, ev everyone, essentially. What do you see is the next step we should be making to reduce the impact of these foods on the health of our country? Yeah, so I have this overarching A of action. So action is quite clearly needed when we have 1.7 with, with diabetes, 2 million with pre-diabetes, many of whom will go on to develop diabetes, uh, two-thirds of Australian adults and one-quarter of our kids are overweight or obese. So the majority of us are not metabolically healthy. The majority of us have metabolic dysfunction. And there are some poorer parts of our uh, society, Greater Western Sydney, for example, 50% of the adults over the age of 24 have type 2 diabetes or prediabetes. So it is an alarming problem, a disease we're now seeing in our children as well, children as young as three. So action is quite clearly needed. And so there's my next layer of A's. So I have three layers of A's, uh, awareness, uh, accountability, and assistance. And we can sort of pick, tease apart these and, and uh, there's many layers here. So there's no one thing that will help. And within each of those A strategies, uh, we can't just say one of those things will do the job. We really need to attack all of them at once. So awareness. Awareness uh, of the preventability and, and reversibility of type 2 diabetes. Uh, and for patients who develop type 2 diabetes, many of them are not aware of the horrendous complications that potentially await them. You know, Neil Hansel, I mentioned the guy that went blind, had no idea. As well as being blind in both eyes, he has had nine amputations. In fact, he had nine amputations over a 14-month period ending in March last year when he lost his whole left leg. So amputation due to gangrene is the second most feared complication of type 2 diabetes or of diabetes in its entirety. Uh, he's also had two heart attacks as well. He had no idea what was waiting for him. And I think this is a big, big problem. You know, we used to see on TV those ads for the complications of, of smoking. We see nothing about the complications of type 2 diabetes. So awareness is critical. And also when we come to the preventability issue, if we look at our 
national dietary guidelines, which are currently up for review or currently the start of the review process, they continue to discourage the eating of natural saturated fats. They encourage the eating of those polyunsaturated seed oils, the vegetables that we euphemistically call them, and they encourage the eating of cereals and grains. So in essence, it's a high-carb, low-fat and low-healthy fat eating pattern, which until we completely turn that round, we're not going to see uh, type 2 diabetes being prevented in a large scale. So awareness is really, really important here. Accountability is also important, and accountability of businesses and industry, and, and ultimately our government to do the right thing by the people of Australia. And there's lots of examples of accountability, but you know this predatory marketing that goes on in our environment. You know, at the checkout, I mentioned before, even in chemists, we have half-priced chocolates and soft drinks, uh, alluring and addictive, just waiting waiting for you there. So, um, and accountability of of the advertisement that goes on in our environment and the advertisement on TV and social media, which are targeting our children, you know, there needs to be accountability here. And again, there's many more layers we can go, we can pick apart there, uh, uh, including the sort of levy on, on or attacks on, on sugary products, particularly sugary drinks. It's just one of many things. And we also need um, a clear and transparent labelling system on foodstuffs, telling us exactly how much added sugar is contained within and not to, to disguise. There are 56 common names for sugar that are used on packages of food. And the final thing is assistance. And if we just look at medical practitioners, health practitioners, my son was in second year medicine last year. He had the opportunity to do nutrition, nutrition science, as an elective, wasn't even compulsory. This is the biggest health crisis that we have. It's far bigger than COVID-19, and yet it's not even being taught in many of our major medical schools. And then we come to my colleagues, my general practitioner colleagues, my nutritionists and dietitian colleagues. Um, they need the education. They need the resources, and particularly they need the time and the financial remuneration, the financial incentives to have these really critical uh, discussions with their patients. And you know, for me, you know, one of the highlights of my medical career, I've had a number through my work with Site for All, but one of the highlights in my medical career here in Australia is to see my patients with vision, acutely vision-threatening diabetic diabetes-related eye disease coming back to me saying that their diabetes is now in remission. It's one of the most satisfying, rewarding things that I've ever experienced. And I want my general practitioner colleagues to have this experience. I want my endocrinologist uh, colleagues to have this experience. I want my um, orthopedic surgeons, vascular surgeons, renal physicians to have this experience. It is so powerful and so wonderful. Yeah, the, uh, there's definitely a huge reason to be, you know, putting a lot, a lot of energy behind this cause. I, I don't know if you if you have any figures off the top of your head, but I imagine that the overconsumption of these ultra-processed foods would be costing our country many, many millions of dollars in, in healthcare, in, um, you know, every, everything, everything even beyond healthcare. Do you, do you know how much the consumption of these ultra-processed foods costs us in the long run? Yeah, the, la the last estimate was quite some years ago, I think it was 2013, that, that type 2 diabetes was costing us about $15 billion a year. But I, I suspect now, several years later, it's around about the $20 billion mark. But if you realise that 
um, insulin resistance, metabolic syndrome, metabolic dysfunction, type 2 diabetes is a big driver. I mentioned the, the complications of it, but the top three killers in our society are heart attack, dementia, and stroke. If you realize type 2 diabetes is a big driver of those, then I suspect metabolic dysfunction and particularly diet-related metabolic dysfunction is the biggest killer in our midst. It, it is also a driver of hypertension and also cancer as well. There are links uh, between uh, uh, metabolic dysfunction and cancer. So I suspect if we factor in all of those other um, really critical uh, chronic diseases, then I suspect the cost to our society, to the taxpayer, is many-fold higher perhaps even approaching $100 billion. So I, I think if someone actually did a serious costing out of this, because what happens when someone passes away? You know, if it's a heart attack, that's listed as a major cause, and then type 2 diabetes doesn't register then if they have it as the cause. But if we actually looked at all of the metabolic dysfunction across all the patients, then I think it would really push it right to the top. I'd be very interested to see that study. Yeah, me too. Um, I, and I think, you know, the these figures are, probably what need to be used uh, at a at a higher level to to really promote these ideas um, there are some Scandinavian countries and maybe some other ones in Europe that have a, a taxation model on on sugar uh, have you looked into how successful those uh, taxation models have have been yeah there are actually many many countries and there's lots of studies now so there's some certainly st some strong evidence uh, behind uh, taxation um, uh, and it has been shown to reduce purchase and reduce consumption. I don't believe at this stage it's been shown to reduce the chronic disease epidemic. You know, that will be uh, some time down the track. But I think, as I mentioned before, it's only one piece of the puzzle. That in itself is not going to turn this around. It needs to be all of these things, you know, including potentially warning labels on, on, on the packets of ultra-processed foods um, and all of those other things I mentioned. It has to be a multi-pronged strategy. Interestingly, when I received the award early last year and I talked about the five A's of sugar toxicity and, and the, I was being interviewed after receiving the award by a journalist and here we are in Canberra, political journalist, uh, when the issue of uh, attacks on sugar came up, that was the only thing that they focused on. And then in the papers in the days after, it was Dr. Nikki Kortra, sugar tax. But I said, no, hang on, hold on, hold on. This is a multi-pronged strategy. That's only one piece. And if we just focused on that, no, we're not going to see it. Um, we need to have that and everything else that I mentioned. Yeah, I think education's got to be one of the most important as well because, you know, um, even when I was growing up, which wasn't that long ago, we didn't have that even that much access. I know in, in my house we didn't have soft drinks and, um, you know, those, those, those sort of treats just weren't super available. But, but nowadays it's, it's become even worse and I, I really get concerned for the, the next generation because kids don't know, you know, what, what the downstream effects are going to be and they certainly aren't up to making those decisions. And I think it's it's extremely difficult for adults as well to um, make, make these decisions because maybe they don't know about the possible consequences either. But um, like another thing I wanted to ask you about was um, ways, other ways in which, aside from diet, that we can um, help with eye health. I know uh, the eyes are a very metabolically demanding part of the brain and um, you know, there's quite a bit of research going on look, 
with photobiomodulation and using light and uh, the dangers of um, screen time with the, the high blue content. Um, how much work do you do with um, light with people's eyes? Uh, to be honest, Cameron, I don't, I don't deal with that at all, so I can't comment on that. But what I do know, so the leading cause of blindness worldwide is cataract. Uh, it isn't the leading cause of blindness in high-income countries. Now, let's say Australia being a high-income country, the leading cause of blindness in elderly people is a condition called age-related macular degeneration. The leading cause of blindness amongst working-age adults is uh, diabetic retinopathy, diabetes-related eye disease. Uh, and there's a lot of work being done on age-related macular degeneration uh, by uh, Chris Kenobi, K-N-O-B-B-E, in the United States, he swears that uh, macular degeneration is being driven by the seed oils, and particularly our ultra-processed food environment. So if we realise then the leading cause of blindness in Australia, macular degeneration, the leading cause of blindness amongst working-age adults, uh, uh, diabetes, particularly type 2 diabetes, um, both diet-related. And then if we look at the fact that cataract is still... A significant problem and we know that there's uh, cataract is more prevalent in people with type 2 diabetes then nutrition is driving much of our loss of vision and blindness in this society uh, i think and if we look at you know our overall health and well-being our poor diet is responsible for more disease and death than smoking alcohol and inactivity combined. Yes, we need to uh, exercise. I think exercise is critical for our health, particularly for our mental health. Yes, we need to reduce our consumption of alcohol and, and, and really smoking should not be um, something we do at all. Um, so those are all important. The diet trumps it by a mile. And so really diet is the thing that we should be focusing on the most to turn this uh, epidemic of, of vision-related and chronic health disease in our in our society cool uh what, what's happening at the level of the eye when we as we age we might need a, a new pair of glasses or a new prescription what, what's happening in the eye that's causing uh that's requiring us to have a, an extra lens to help put things in focus yeah that's something that happens in pretty much everyone as we age and it usually starts in our early 40s and it's called presbyopia so the lens of the eye is, is crystal clear and it is flexible and there's muscles and fibres that pull on the lens to help focus up close. But once we reach our early 40s, the lens starts to harden and the muscles can't uh, pull the lens into a shape to allow us to focus up close. So that's when we start to move the reading material, for example, further away from us. But it gets to a stage where your, your, your arms quite simply aren't long enough and the print gets too small to be able to see it. And so what you need then is essentially a magnifying glass. And what reading glasses are, um, if you don't have any other glasses error in your eyes, it's simply a magnifier to bring the reading material closer to you. So that's, in essence, what happens. And it starts in our early 40s, goes through to mid-60s. By the time we've reached our mid-60s, the lens uh, is not flexible anymore. And so you need um, a fixed set of reading glasses, which will then pretty much take you through to the rest of your life. Um, but um, you know, many of us, in fact, virtually all of us will develop a cataract if we live long enough. And cataract surgery is, is as I mentioned, it's a beautiful, elegant, sophisticated operation. Um, but it's, um, it, 
it, it restores sight uh, in the vast majority of people uh, within within a day or two. It's, it is quite extraordinary and wonderful to see. But at this point in time, we usually have a fixed focus lens. We can either fix it for the distance. We can also see multifocal lenses, which allow people to see in the distance, but also see up close. Um, but we're, they're working on, at the moment, uh, a lens which will hopefully um, be flexible and then allow that focusing without um, uh, without the need for glasses uh, as, as we were before our early 40s. So that's something that hopefully we'll see down the track. There's a, a lot of research going into that because that would be a wonderful thing. Yeah, definitely. That's that's fascinating. One thing I've been really interested in is this idea that in our evolutionary past, we would have only been exposed to natural light, which is always rich in infrared and far infrared. Um, whereas today, as soon as we go inside, that infrared portion gets chopped off precipitously and the lights that we use are, are rich in, in blue and green. Um, is there an impact on the way the lens uh, molds based on the irradiance of light that we get in our eyes and perhaps over time the uh, subtraction of uh, great amounts of infrared could be causing the muscles to become fatigued? Yeah, very interesting question, Cameron. So I've been involved in a number of childhood blindness studies and, and refractive error or glasses error studies uh, in Asia. And one of the really interesting ones was from, from Laos, Laos uh, some years ago where we um, examined children uh, from the Vientiane province. Vientiane is the capital of Laos. And there are 20-odd schools that we visited in that study and quite a significant number of, of children who are in their early teens for memory. And what we, we actually, the, the results of that study showed a group of children who had the best vision in the world published at that time, which was um, roughly 10 years ago. Prior to that, it was um, kids from Aboriginal communities in Australia, which had, had fantastic vision. And when we went back and looked at those schools, I think there was only one or two that actually had a library. So I wondered whether just quite simply the fact that they weren't reading was somehow contributing to this. But since that time, and, and we actually then did, we went on and did a, a similar study in Cambodia where we compared children at schools from urban areas versus rural areas. And we found that the kids from rural areas had uh, better vision. In essence, they had a, a lesser degree of short-sightedness or myopia. But then we, if we look at, um, so that, that kind of reinforced my thinking that there was, was um, uh, children uh, getting outdoors, being out in nature um, versus children who were, always indoors, you know, reading, looking at things, which was somehow driving this. And we know uh, in, in cities like Hong Kong, Beijing, there's a very, very high level, high prevalence of short-sightedness or myopia. But I understand, and I haven't looked at the recent data, but I understand that, yes, um, time spent outdoors is absolutely uh, related to this. So the more time spent outdoors, the less risk of myopia. Um, but I believe it's related to ultraviolet exposure. So if we're not being exposed to ultraviolet light by being outdoors, this can somehow lead to the weakening of the outer coats of the eye, leading to expansion of the eye, and that can then lead to short-sightedness or myopia. So I suspect it's something like that, but it may well be a lot more complicated with underlying genetic issues as well as environmental issues like many of these diseases. So um, I can't give you the full picture on it, but that is, it is perhaps uh, part of the, uh, the story there. That's fascinating. I didn't think about the UV 
aspect of it. How permeable is the lens of the eye to UV light? Because I've heard some people say it's it's impermeable, but then I've I've also heard that maybe about one to two percent of the UV gets through the lens. Yeah, again, Cameron, I, I can't give you the, the data on that. So yeah, yeah, I can't I can't let you know about that. But certainly the, the lens of the eye uh, it does have a, a filter in it for sure. Right, right. Okay. Um I'm sure you um, probably know of some specific nutrients in food that are particularly useful for maintaining eye health and and uh, colour determination as well. Um, I've heard that uh, the most densely um, packed part of the body with uh, omega three fats is the retina. Um, is this is this something that you think could be used? You know. Uh, fish consumption is is quite low and do you think that those two things might be related? Cameron, you seem to know more about the eye than I do. <laughs> <laughs> You've obviously been doing your reading very, very good. No, I, again, I wasn't I wasn't aware of that. It's, it's I've been so focused on type 2 diabetes that I haven't haven't been you know focusing on that. But what is interesting, I was I mentioned before, I think I mentioned I was involved in an adult blindness study in Myanmar. Uh, as well as finding very low level of or no no diabetes related eye disease and no cases of type two diabetes, uh, we also found, and at that point um, we published a number of papers. But the lead paper showed the highest prevalence of blindness in the world. It was something like eight percent or over eight percent of presenting blindness in, patient, in people over the age of forty, which is quite staggering. Nearly one in ten were blind, and the vast majority of those were blind due to cataract. Uh, and I was in my early 40s at the time, and I was seeing people in that study who are younger than me, who are 40, 41, 42, who were visually impaired, even blind due to cataract. And it's just something we don't see here. And then I mentioned before that I was a keen, or well, I'm a keen photographer. So before uh, we started the study each day, I would go out and, and, and photograph in the village and go out into the fields, and I, I saw... Uh, the farmers slaving away, um, you know, uh, with with ploughs being towed by bullocks, and they were absolutely skinny, uh, but they were sweating and they were dehydrating themselves, and I suspect weren't replenishing their hydration with fresh water, um, and and I think my feeling, my theory after that was that. Um, Patients were in a chronic state of dehydration. People were in, a, in, in those villages where it was a very hot area of central Myanmar, quite dry, uh, and they were in a chronic state of dehydration. Possibly added to that were uh, acute or subacute episodes of um, gastrointestinal illnesses, which then exacerbated the dehydration. And I wonder whether this state of dehydration uh, exacerbated by acute episodes um, was somehow driving uh, this formation of cataract rather than any lack of nutrients they had in their diet uh, that they had in their rice, for example. But that was something we were also going to go back and have a little look at, but haven't as yet. So I can't tell you for sure um, whether that um, uh, nutrient plays nutrient or, or plays a role in this, but I think the bottom line is, you know, avoiding ultra-processed foods, sugary foods, seed oils, uh, refined carbohydrates as much as possible can only be a good thing for our health. Definitely, for sure. Um, there's a big culture in Australia of wearing sunglasses out, outside. Um, 
I was wondering where you landed on that debate, whether we should be, you know, as soon as we step outside putting sunglasses on or should we be spending some time to let some um, high intensity sunlight in? Like you said, you know, there does seem to be a beneficial aspect of being out in nature, whether it's the, you know, seeing uh, far and wide and, and that forward ambulation, having things going past you as well as the the light. But do you, do you recommend people um, let some light in rather than always wearing sunglasses outside? Exactly, and I think that early morning sun is is critical and um, uh, getting out there before the sun is too high in the sky because that's when it becomes more dangerous. Certainly that early morning sun's filtered by a significant layer of atmosphere, so it's not as harsh, it's not as potentially damaging to uh, to our skin, uh, to our eyes. And I know myself, so I'm actually an eye cancer specialist, that was my main subspecialty, and I have one of the largest series in the world of cancer, of eye cancer on the surface of the eye. Most people wouldn't have even heard of it. But the majority of my patients who had the cancer on the surface of the eye were people who worked outdoors, particularly farmers in, in rural communities in South Australia. And many of them, I suspect, when they were younger, were not wearing a hat. Uh, not wearing sunglasses. So generally with patients who I see have significant sun damage on the surface of the eyes, and particularly if patients have had little cancer on the surface of the eyes that I've treated, I recommend that they wear uh, you know, a wide brim hat, particularly when they're out uh, in the harsh light of the midday sun and, and dark glasses, ultraviolet protective glasses in that harsh sun is, is probably quite sensible to reduce the chance of, of that happening. I think uh, a good hat is, is a really good thing to wear in the middle of the day, keep the sun off the face. And, and certainly many of those farmers also had significant uh, cancers and sun damage to their skin of their face. And uh, we don't want to see that as well. So it's a balance really, isn't it, between having that, that uh, exposure to sun um, in, the, in the morning uh, versus exposure to the very harsh, potentially damaging sun during the middle of the day. Is, is this um, the cancer of the eye, is that an ocular melanoma? No. So uh, the commonest cancers that I treat in children is, is, a, is a condition called retinoblastoma, and that's due to a genetic, genetic mutation. We don't know the underlying causes of that as yet. In adults, the, uh, the commonest cancers that I see in the eye are what I mentioned before, cancer on the surface of the eye, which is actually squamous cell carcinoma, or there's a, a lesion called um, squamous neoplasia or dysplasia, which is a, a basically a, a precursor to squamous cell carcinoma on the surface of the eye. Um, we do see melanomas on the surface of the eye, but they're very rare, and they tend to arise in another pathological setting called primary acquired melanosis, and that is not related to sun exposure. Uh, the commonest cancer inside the eye that we see, there are two. One is melanoma of the uveal, U-V-E-A-L, the uveal tissue, which is the tissue beneath the retina. Um, so the choroidal melanoma, ciliary body melanoma, iris melanoma. And the other thing we see is secondary cancer spreading from cancers, primary cancers elsewhere in the body and ending up primarily in the uveal, particularly the choroid, so choroidal metastasis uh, in women, breast cancer, in men, lung cancer particularly. So those are the, the commonest cancers. And, and I don't believe there's a definite link to ultraviolet exposure, sun exposure to melanoma inside the eye. 
In fact, we see melanomas. There was a case that was going around amongst my colleagues just this week uh, in, in a teenager uh, seeing a melanoma inside the eye. So occasionally that does happen. Fortunately, it's pretty rare, um, but uh, it, it, we can see melanomas arising in kids, uh, almost certainly not related to, to chronic uh, ultraviolet exposure. That's fascinating. I, uh, I wasn't aware of, of, of all of the different types of um, cancers that you can get of the eye. Um, and they're more still, but they're all pretty rare. Yeah, well, that's thank, thank, thankfully they're they're rare. Um, where where do you see your work going from here? What 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 are you involved in uh, have, most heavily at the moment? Well, interestingly, myself, I have a, a neurological condition impacting on my right hand function, my dominant hand function, which I inherited from from dad, uh, which is a little frustrating. I actually had to give up surgery back in 2016. I actually gave up cataract surgery in 2012, but it's now impacting on my day-to-day -day work. Not so much um, uh, any skill level, but a, a constant discomfort in my, in fact, I can feel it now in my elbow and my hand um, because I have no uh, control over how hard I hold things with my right hand. So it's uh, just a chronic state of contraction in my my hand, which is impacting on uh, my ability to, to examine patients and to do most things with my right hand. So it's frustrating. So I'm actually looking at a succession plan at the moment and, and most likely will be retiring in the next few months. So um, before I actually received the award, the South Australian Award, a couple of years, I, I realised that this was on the horizon. So I was already starting to look at the next phase of life. So I was looking at the opportunity to do some keynote speaking. Uh, I've been involved in, in producing and creating a number of short films. So I wanted to get involved in documentary production. Uh, I wanted to write a book, which uh, all of these things I'm actually doing at the moment. And so I already have a little bit of a game plan, uh, but I also want to continue uh, doing my work in a voluntary capacity for Site for All. Uh, also, my work advocating around uh, chronic disease epidemic. I currently spend about 40 or 50 hours a week on that alone, you know, in a, in a pro bono, in a voluntary capacity. So um, no doubt I'll keep myself busy in the next stage of life, but uh, a little sad to leave my clinical career behind, um, but I won't be leaving medicine behind. And I'm actually really looking forward to the next stage of life. That's, uh, that's fantastic. I, I'm sure you've got plenty of people who are looking forward to um, what you're what you're going to be pursuing next, uh, particularly if there's a book on the way, I think um, I think lots of people will be interested. And yeah, I think I think there's uh, lots of people out there who are very very grateful for your work and sort of bringing this problem to the foreground because it is a big problem. And um, yeah, it's good good to have someone like you behind it. So yeah, we I, we're all very grateful for it. Thank you, Kevin. I mean, the more voices. The more voices, uh, the better. I mean, this is a, a movement. If it's not coming from top down, it has to come from ground up. It needs to be a grassroots movement. And I'm currently in the process of setting up a network uh, of people working in this space to ultimately have that systemic change, that systematic impact. So I'll be launching that very soon and really excited to, to share that because I think it's that that's going to ultimately be able to weave everyone involved in this space together to move this forward and ultimately to, to turn this um, chronic disease epidemic around. So uh, it's not a quick, easy fix. I mentioned before, that's my personality. I like a quick, easy fix. And... Uh, I realise that that's not the case. I was hoping I would have solved all sorts of problems during my year as 2020 Australian of the Year, uh, but there's a lot 
longer to go and uh, I'm under no um, illusion that this is going to take decades. I mean, smoking, smoking-related diseases, smoking epidemic took decades to turn around because there's so many vested interests trying to stop those voices uh, and that action. And so this is actually bigger um, than the tobacco industry, bigger than the, the smoking uh, the smoking um, uh, disease epidemic that we had. So it's going to be going to be a lot of work ahead of me, I suspect. Yeah, well, what I'll do is I'll make sure I put all of your projects, links to all of your projects in the in the notes for this episode. So if people want to help out or, or, or keep in touch with you, they can. Um, but yeah, thank you so much for coming on to talk to me today. Hopefully uh, this can help uh, your, your voice be heard a little bit more. I appreciate the opportunity, Cameron. Thank you for all you're doing as well. I think the more of us out there spreading these important messages, the better. So uh, thank you for everything you do as well. Cheers, James. Take care. See you, Cameron. Bye. Thank you so much for listening. I really hope you enjoyed our conversation. If you want to keep up with my work, you can find me using at Richie Flow Nutrition on social media. Thanks again, everyone. Take care.